when Christ then is born as a completely normal human being, is born as a baby and, and, and lives a normal life, and then dies and is risen as a physical, touchable, recognizable human being, it's the final vindication of the original humanity, as in Adam and Eve, um, that God hasn't given up on this concept. In fact, he has redeemed it and transformed it into a kind of Homo sapiens 2.0. And so drawing on from that, I think we don't need to have a a more advanced, sophisticated kind of humanity. If this kind of humanity is good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for me. I, I don't need to uh, to crave an enhanced and uh, robotically or digitally enhanced kind of humanity because the original form of humanity has been vindicated in in the incarnate Christ. It seems like we're wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world, full of uncertainty, is yet to be born. Like the poet Dante, we find ourselves in a darkened wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante's journey through darkness with the light of reason, but then Beatrice illuminated his path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At the Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Gretchen Huizinga. I'm a research fellow at AI and Faith and a principal investigator with the Beatrice Institute's project, Being Human in an Age of Artificial Intelligence. What makes humans special? And what does it mean to flourish on the frontier of a technological future? My guest today is Dr. John Wyatt. He's an emeritus professor of neonatal pediatrics, ethics, and perinatology at University College London, and he's also a senior researcher at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at Cambridge, where he explores new ethical, philosophical, and theological challenges caused by advances in medical science and technology. He says he's fascinated by the rapid advances in AI and robotics and the interface between cutting-edge science and the Christian faith. As it turns out, I am too. So I'm thrilled that he's on the show today. John Wyatt, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Christian. It's good to be here. So your career path could be described as a journey from biology to technology. Give us a brief professional history of John Wyatt. <laughs> How, and maybe more importantly, why, did a medical doctor end up doing robotics research? Yes, I started off in physics be, uh, before I changed to medicine. So I've always been have, had a kind of nerdish uh, interest in the <laughs> uh, physics and technology. But um, then I had a spiritual crisis as a young student and changed from physics to medicine, feeling strongly a sense of call to work as a as a physician, as a doctor, and. Um, I trained in London. I uh, was was drawn to pediatrics and became a trained in general pediatrics and then specialised in neonatology, the care of newborn babies. And I went into the field primarily because I loved children and it was a very exciting, rapidly developing science-based kind of medicine. And it was really only after I was working in the field that I was increasingly aware of the fact that I was in the midst of an ethical maelstrom uh, with all kinds of issues uh, being caused by advancing medical t biomedical technology, uh, ability to keep babies alive. Uh, we were doing sophisticated research into identifying brain damage in babies. And then the question was, how do we use this information? And, and also issues concerning abortion and uh, prenatal screening. So a, a wide a uh, range of issues. And so increasingly, I started to move away from the frontline clinical work uh, and become more and more involved in, in ethics. And as a Christian, I'd been very heavily influenced by John Stott, who happened to be the rector of the church I was attending, All Souls Church in central London. 
and he became a personal friend and a kind of spiritual father to me, as he was to so many other younger people. And so I really took on his vision of what he used to call double listening, or of uh, Christians engaging and listening to the issues of the modern world, and then trying to build a a bridge between the real issues which were being confronted in the modern world and the historic Christian faith. And so mm. I think what I increasingly have realised is that each time uh, uh, technology advances, it raises some very fundamental questions. And in particular, it raises the question of what it means to be human mm. and also what kind of society are we building for the future? And I have seen that repeatedly in the biomedical field, uh, but I've become increasingly convinced that the next front uh, which is being opened up in addressing these questions is particularly with AI and robotics, and that it is raising, again, these age-old questions. What does it mean to be human? What kind of human society are we building for the future? Hmm. So you mentioned a spiritual crisis in physics. I had one too, but it was only after one course. (laughs) (laughs) No, and actually, I've interviewed quite a few scientists who started in physics and ended up elsewhere. (laughs) So I wonder if there's a crisis in that particular discipline anyway. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... I mean, once you start doing university-level physics and you realise that there are some people who find they can just think in n-dimensional space, you know, without any kind of... It's just... (laughs) It's all there in their heads. And I was really... I really am not that kind of person. Um, So... I'll be a doctor instead. (laughs) That's right. That's just fascinating. Well, you you co-edited a book. You co-edited a book called The Robot Will See You Now, which is an interesting blend of medicine and robotics in the title. And it's a collection of essays on artificial intelligence in the Christian faith. Why did we need this book? Well, I, um, as I was on this journey of becoming persuaded that AI and um, was a really important issue to to address from a, from a Christian perspective, I um, have had a close link with the Faraday Institute, as you mentioned earlier, which is Institute of Science and Religion based in Cambridge. And I persuaded them to support a research project specifically in AI. And we managed to get funding uh, from the Templeton Foundation, was part of a a wider program grant. And so I had the privilege of, of three years working with Peter Robinson, who was Professor of Computing in Cambridge, and arranging a series of workshops and uh, conversations uh, with uh, a, a series of technologists, uh, philosophers, theologians, and so on, just to think through the question, what is the impact of uh, nearly human machines on our understanding of what it means to be human? And and the book is really a product of that, uh, that journey. Yeah. Uh, many of the authors, the chapter authors, were people who were involved in the workshop. And... When I was writing this book, I, I was very, or editing the book, I was very determined not th- that it should not be just a standard academic multi author volume that costs, you know, $150 and sits on a, on a university <laughs> library shelf and no one could ever afford to, to buy it. So I was much more concerned at trying to produce a, a volume which was academically credible, but which was intended at the informed layperson that didn't assume any technical knowledge. And so we managed to get a a remarkable uh, combination of authors uh, from a variety of continents, um, different backgrounds. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an an early contribution to the field, but I hope it is raising many of the questions at least highlighting many of the questions which I think are going to become important as we go into this next phase. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of those questions. Um, You have a recent article called Artificial Intelligence and Simulated Relationships, which is basically an extension of that the robot will see you now. I, I, you know, kind of think forward and say, how will it be in the future when we all get replaced by robots? We're not going to, but anyway. In the book, or sorry, in the article, you discuss an array of what we now call bots. 
chatbots, care bots, mental health bots, which I think someone are call- some people are calling woe bots for depression and anxiety, and sex bots. So let's talk a little bit about the arguments in favor of these AI applications, because they're sold to us as, as meeting a need or solving a problem. And then I want you to answer the question you raise in the article, which goes like this. Could synthetic relationships with AIs somehow interfere with the messy process of real human interactions and with our understanding of what it means to be a person? <laughs> How, how's that for layers? <laughs> Talk about the bots, for starters. Yes. Well, you know, it all goes back to Eliza, doesn't it, with Joseph Weizenbaum. And he created this very, very simple uh, program. And then I think, you know, he said subsequently, he was quite horrified with the way that people started taking this very seriously. And in fact, I think the anecdote was that his secretary started, ty- you know, it was not a sort of teletype, started having conversations with Eliza and then asked him to leave the room because this was a personal interaction. <laughs> and, um, and I think ever since, uh, it's become apparent that, that human beings have this enormous tendency to anthropomorphize technology which appears to be intelligent which which appears to 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 simulate human speech or human relationship and and i see this as an unstoppable trend i think it is only just begun the commercial mm. potential of course is is enormous and has been identified with uh, like Google Home and Amazon Alexa and many other Siri and um, and of course there is a huge investment going on to make these speech producing bots uh, more and more mm. effective and and to destroy our sense that this is something artificial and create the illusion that we're actually talking to a uh, some kind of intelligent being and. There are already many people, I mean, I'm particularly interested and concerned about the effect of, of on children. I mean, what, what happens when from your earliest memories you are engaging with with these bots? I mean, I've already heard anecdotally, for instance, a seven-year-old saying to the family, oh, we have to take Alexa with us on holiday because she's part of the family. You know, And, and I think there's fascinating research suggesting that in particular children almost seem to developing developing a third category for for a being so that most of us from very early on dis- manage to divide the world into beings that are living and beings that are not living and we have a inter- intellectually we have a very clear distinction between these two but what there is evidence that children who are exposed from an early age with uh, this is in, the, in the robotic animals create a third ontological category, and that and it's somewhere halfway between. This this thing is neither fully living nor is it fully non-living. It is a bit living. It is as though it was living, <laughs> and I think we just don't know what the consequence, the long-term consequences were. But we are already seeing people who say, actually, I much prefer talking to my bot that I do talking to human beings because my bot is always friendly, is always pleased to see me, is always positive and encouraging, is never tired, never has its own interests, never tells me to push off, never tells me that I'm a prat. You know, it, 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 it's just, it, and, and so much nicer than talking to a human being. <laughs> so I, I do feel a, a certain concern. Listen, I want to drill... I want to drill in there because what you've just described is what I have seen as the selling point for sex bots. As a woman, you know, uh, it's like, it, whatever. We could go down all kinds of <laughs> yes. creepy trails with that. But is this an X-rated show? <laughs> no, it's not. But I mean, it is sold, you know, the pitch for it is that it would be for people who are in involuntarily... I don't, yeah, you know what I'm doing. Prisons, you know, the military, etc. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, deprived of deprived of female companionship, 
and therefore and we've got an entire we got an entire category called incels which is involuntarily celibate and that has more to do with you know attractiveness and geekiness than it does with i have to go to the military for a, a period of time but so so backing up to the it's always there always kind, always responding in the way we want, whether it's for care, mental health, or sex. What is that doing to us? Yeah, absolutely right. And um, I, I think there is, uh, you know, this real concern that it's actually changing our understanding of what relationships are for, with what, what a good relationship looks like, um, of what being concerned for the other and so on and it and it's pr- producing a kind of very transactional kind of kind of relationship mm-hmm. right take that same thought thread and go back to the care bot and mental health bot and and this is a question that i haven't asked before but it's something that's been on my heart and mind is if we have for example, the mental health bot, the argument in favor is that it's always available. So if there's someone who's struggling with depression or maybe suicidal ideations, they could contact, text this this chat bot, this mental health bot that would walk them through an Eliza-like experience of therapy at midnight when a when a caregiver is not available. Is there any level of developing an inner strength or ability to wait for something. I wouldn't say, you know, if someone's completely suicidal, we should say this is something you should do. But if we have a society that always gets our needs met immediately, a servant-centric society, where does the human idea of suffering through something or developing spiritual strength or emotional strength go? Well, absolutely. And I I think they're really good questions. I personally would think it's helpful to to draw a distinction between bots and programs which are specifically designed for a therapeutic purpose compared with bots which are designed for normal quotes relationships or as a as as someone to be friendly with when you're lonely because i think they're they're two different cases and and they uh, and we need to think about them separately because I do think there is a place for these kind of of tools to be used by professionals for therapeutic purposes. And there's no doubt that they can be very powerful. And and one example you've given is of a kind of mental health applications which are providing some kind of uh, replacement or, or additional support for cognitive behavioral therapy or for talking therapies or um, something else like that. And I think in that context, professionally supervised, given for specific therapeutic purposes, I think these are very powerful tools. And and another completely different example is the use of robots with children with autistic spectrum disorder, where they seem to have, Hmm. can have a very powerful means of helping children learn how to read faces, how to engage, um, and, and, and become more, more, socially competent. So I, I think there's definitely a place within the therapeutic armamentarium, but I, I would want to draw a distinction between that and um, the use as a replacement for human uh, for human friendship, because I think it's pretty obvious that there's a dangerous path there of, of ultimately withdrawing from human relationships. Right. And what you just said fascinated me um, that someone on the autism spectrum could use a robot to help distinguish human facial (laughs) expressions or the face, the eyes, the voice from a machine. But that's a whole separate question. But it it actually leads into uh, another phrase that comes up in your work of analogous personhood, which is, um, I think, who's the author who? Nigel Cameron. It was actually Nigel Cameron, and I think it was in a conversation with him that that he used this phrase, and I found it extremely interesting and quite helpful because it it is it's the suggestion that an analogous person is is an entity that we know is not a person, but it is capable of playing the role of a person in certain 
specific contexts. And I, you know, I think it's clearly controversial. And I know that some people have resisted and, and that, that particular phrase, but I, I am interested in the idea because I, I, I think the idea that of analogy, that there is, there is something analogous between what a, a bot does and, and the way a person behaves. And as long as we understand it's analogous, but it, but it isn't the same thing, then there is some value in that, in that, um, in that formulation. Mm-hmm. Well, so then that raises the question I think you even ask, is it unethical even to design robots that resemble humans because of the danger of, as you said, bringing children into this space where you and I were of a certain age and we remember a completely analog world. And, you know, you think of the kids, my nephew's son was making pinching fingers on a magazine. Like there was a picture and he was trying to enlarge it with his fingers. And it it spoke to the idea that a magazine is an iPad that doesn't work. (laughs) So again, that this ethical murky area where we're des- we are designing robots to simulate or you know be analogous persons is that ethical this is a big question in your world it absolutely is and it, and it's interesting i've often been challenged by people who say yeah but doesn't that isn't that what children have always been doing with a teddy bear or with a um with a doll and my answer to that is well, yes and no. I mean, it, it probably is true that in some ways a teddy bear is an analogous person. But every child who has at all got normal cognitive development knows that this is not a real bear. And however much, you know, the little girl puts the doll in, into, her, into a, you know, the doll's house and talks to it and has dinner with it and all the rest, the child is completely aware that this is not a real baby. Because as soon as you confront the child with a real baby, their behavior is completely different. And so the problem with the, the new sophisticated uh, simulacra is that that is the confusion. Now, now that is the child really certain that this is not living or is it living and, and how should I treat it? And I, I think that it, it's that blurring which I, I feel really concerned about. And so I like the suggestion, which has been put forward by several people. It's sometimes been called a Turing red flag, which is the idea that whenever we have an interaction with some form of AI program or robot, where we are at risk of confusing this for a human person, that actually by law, the device has to say, I need to remind you that I'm not a human being. You know, it's almost like the terms and conditions. In other words, we break the spell. We break the illusion. The machine is designed to continually break the illusion so that you cannot be con- confused this. Right. And I, I, I really, yeah, I really like that. I think that that is a, a very positive suggestion. Break the fourth Interestingly, wall. that the manufacturers hate it because everything is about building the illusion and preserving the illusion. Sure. And, and to have to be constantly destroying the illusion they would see as entirely counterproductive. But my perspective is above all protecting the vulnerable and uh, from abuse and manipulation. And, and, in, and if we ha- in order to do that, we have to continually break the illusion. And I think that's probably a good response. You know, John, every, everything you're saying is like bringing up new questions. And, and one of them, as you even talk about these bots that are resembling humans, there's another layer of data collection that's going on. When you talk to your teddy bear, it's a stuffed animal and there's no software behind it. There's no connection to a database. And where I see some of these applications going is is commercially, as you've ex- uh, explained before. And so what value does a, a company get by making a bot that talks to a child and those eyes are actually recording or hearing? It doesn't just go into the the mechanical teddy bear. It goes to a database in a company. So what a, that that's where I get to the, is this ethical? <laughs> 
And, and of course, you're absolutely right. And and this is where it's so deceptive, isn't it? Because on the surface, this this seems so harmless and toy-like and limited in its capability. But the reality is, of course, is that this device via the cloud has access to obscene amounts of data and information, and it could be being powered by some supercomputer. And all of that is entirely opaque right? And, and, and even impossible to control. And so these are very, very real concerns. And it seems to me that at the moment, the whole regulatory frameworks are way behind the speed with which these commercial companies are ahead of the game. And, and one of the really important things, therefore, is to, is to, is to try to uh, restore the balance and 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 to insist on far greater transparency and um, and of course most of us don't want to be tracked most of us don't want conversations to be recorded most of us don't want our data to be uh, filleted off and analyzed and if we are given the choice we will say we don't want it to happen yeah so I think we need to be given the choice right but then you have the category of the child who doesn't have a file folder for that, or a mentally um, unstable person who also has a, maybe does have the file folder but is disturbed enough not to care at the moment. And those two buckets of data from a, a mental health perspective and a you know minor perspective are the ones that bug me the most. Absolutely. And, you know, from a Christian perspective, this recurring theme throughout the scriptures of the vulnerable in society of widows, orphans, and immigrants. And, and that's, that is very much at the heart of a, of a Christian understanding of society is the protection of vulnerable. And, and that really, to me, comes before things such as wealth creation and other, you know, all of which are potentially good in themselves, but they're outweighed by the importance of protecting and defending the vulnerable. Yeah. And this whole idea of deception is at the core of this, the sim simulacra. And that, that leads into a discussion that we could have about the false image or the idol. And you address in an article what that's capable of doing to humans or human worshipers, specifically the idol. But what parallels do you draw between our human tendency to make idolatrous artifacts, as it were, in the image of God. And more recently now, what's happening with AI is that we're making idolatrous artifacts in the image of humans. Well, I certainly think the category of the idol is a very powerful biblical category and which needs to be thoughtfully reflected on and, and, and applied. And of course, the Old Testament, I mean, I think of that passage in Isaiah where Isaiah lampoons the idolaters because they take a lump of wood and half of it they burn to keep themselves warm because it's just wood. <laughs> and then they take the other half and they turn it into an idol and then they bow down and worship it. You know, how <laughs> how mad can you be? And yet that's in a way exactly what we're starting to see in, in um, many forms of AI in that part of us knows it's simply ones and noughts and bits and some circuits whizzing around. And yet, you know, just recently we had the case of the Google engineer who felt that this advanced program was becoming sentient and, and needed to be treated with respect. And, and, it, and the point about the biblical image of the idol is that although the idol is ultimately nothing, it is simply wood, it is simply material, but actually it exerts a strange power, deceptive power on the worshipper. And it, it, um, it, it's, it dominates something that is ultimately powerless, paradoxically starts to dominate our lives. And I think applied to advanced programming techniques, I, I, I really think there is something in that, that these, these are ultimately powerless idols in their, in their very nature, and yet they can exert the most extraordinary power and mastery over us uh, in, in a very strange way. Incidentally, I, I do find this, this quite common phrase that, you know, God made human beings in his own image, and now we are making 
machines in our image. I have to say, I, I find that very unhelpful because I think it doesn't reflect the richness of what the Bible means by being made in the image of God. I mean, it's only God who is capable of making anything in an image because the image is is a, a profound reflection in a completely different... So, so God is, is spirit, and yet he chooses to call into existence matter and then and then mold that matter to reflect his own his own being now that that is a profound wonderful thing there is no way that human beings can ever do anything like that we 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 are simply incapable as beings made out of dust of creating anything in our image in that sense and so i i i just i think that's probably not a very helpful way of thinking about it nonetheless because we are the human, because these are artifacts created by human beings, and because human beings are fallen, we should not be surprised that the artifacts we create are contaminated by our fallenness, and, and that includes AI. Right. Well, and, and as you as you unpack that, I, I see that, but I also see our human desire to try to do what God did and to try to be what God was. And so, my framework for it isn't that we're actually doing what God did, but it's the the whole run at the hill thing, especially for people who take God out of the equation. You know, if you if you order intelligence in such a way where you have divine intelligence, human intelligence, and machine intelligence, you've got a complete anthropology. God out of it, you don't. And and it's just us. So why wouldn't we take a run at that hill? Okay. Yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. So well, and even then, I think, you know, a block of wood, like you mentioned, I, I used that in my dissertation as an example of how stupid we are. <laughs> and there's other spare areas in scripture that talk about that as well. But AI gives us a very particularly oracular instantiation. So I can't, the, the wood isn't going to talk back to me, but the AI might. No, exactly right. And I think that is something which is profoundly interesting and mysterious because the whole point in the in the biblical narrative is that the idols couldn't speak and they they couldn't move and they couldn't breathe. They were they were and and so part of the lampooning of the idol of the idolater is it's so transparently obvious that these idols have no innate power. But what we have created is we've created idols that speak back to us and idols that can move and idols that seem to have all the appearance of being human. And, and, and that is deeply troubling and interesting. Uh, but it, of course, it, it, it indicates why these modern idols are so much more powerful and, and so much more deceptive. Right. And tricky. <laughs> Well, so you and I have talked a couple of times about spiritual powers and both good and bad. And in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians, he says to them, our battle is not, or he reminds them, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. So some people have suggested that those spiritual powers find their way into the tools we make. And I have to ask you, John, do you think AI is becoming one of those powers? Well, I certainly think we have to be extremely cautious before we, and, and, and mustn't adopt a kind of simplistic metaphysics of, of, of demons infesting, infesting computers. Because actually, the metaphysics that Paul and the New Testament writers is, is a highly sophisticated <laughs> and, and, and thoughtful uh, understanding yeah. of and I, I've been quite influenced by the work of Walter Wink, who wrote about, who analysed in great detail the use of the language of power in the New Testament. And, and his basic conclusion is that the way the New Testament thought world uh, was that there was both all powers exerted in the human sphere had both a material human component and an immaterial hidden spiritual component. And often modern commentators, when they read this language of powers, they say, well, it's not clear. Is Paul here talking about the earthly powers, the magistrates, the rulers, or is he talking about hidden spiritual forces? 
And what Wink says is the whole point is that in Pauline thinking, the two are inextricably intertwined. Whenever there is earthly authority, there is also uh, hidden spiritual authority. And, and, and I think that's a very interesting lens to think about what's going on here now, because it is extraordinary and unexpected the way that the use of information technology seems to unleash the most disruptive evil forces. And I suspect that the, the you know, the Silicon Valley ethos out of which much of the Silicon Valley companies came was a kind of new age, optimistic information wants to be free. Uh, it was all about open source software. You know, we just share everything, you know, it's peace, truth, love, man. And, and, um, of course, it always had this other element, the, the military, the military industrial complex were very interested in AI as well. But, but, and, and then what happened is that the commercial forces, you know, we could suddenly monetize all this stuff. But that kind of peace, truth, love is still, is still there. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg says, I want to connect every human being on the planet. What could possibly go wrong? And, and then, <laughs> You know, he just connects people across the planet. And to everyone's astonishment, what happens is there's an outpouring <laughs> of evil, of trolling, of abuse, of disinformation, of hate, of violence. People die. There are riots. And all he's done is connected people together. And so, and, and this seems to be whenever there is some kind of advance in the technology, we just see further examples of evil and malevolence and corruption and, 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 and hatred. And, and so the, the fascinating thing is that if you take a purely physicalist understanding of the universe, ultimately there's nothing there but atoms and the laws of physics and subatomic particles, then there is really no category for evil. And I think many people working in the tech industry and in Silicon Valley and so on, they simply don't have a category for evil. They have a category for programming errors and, and bad technology, and they have a category for sort of freak accidents and things going wrong. But the idea of malevolence is something quite strange. And, and so then it's interesting that more recently they developed this concept of the bad actor. So, so, so the idea is that the majority of people across the world, of course, are, you know, normal, decent human beings like us, you know, and they would never do anything <laughs> evil. But then there are a few bad actors and they've got some kind of wiring wrong in their brains and so on. But it's, it's a very simplistic and naive understanding of the nature of evil. And one of the things that is often said about Christian theology, the orthodox biblical Christian theology, is it always takes evil very seriously. It always treats evil with respect. It sees it as a powerful, destructive force that has to be reckoned with and even anticipated. So I don't think Christians were particularly surprised that connecting people across the world led to vast amount of evil, you know, that, that because, of course, in Christian thinking, there's a much greater awareness that the, the human heart is itself, this hidden reality within us is, is contaminated by evil. Mm. So maybe the question of, is AI becoming one of those powers is, well, of course, it always would have been and is because everything that's in this fallen state and under the authorities of this dark world is, is part of that fabric. But particularly, I'm another philosopher who's very much influenced by own thinking is George Grant, um, Canadian philosopher, who wrote very profoundly in the early days of computer uh, technology about the nature of technology. And he, he defined technology as, a, as an interpenetration of knowing and making, uh, so technologos, uh, orientated towards the mastery of human and non-human nature. So, so ultimately, it was orientated towards mastery. Uh, interestingly, he saw cybernetics as a particular example of that, it's all about the helmsman, the one who is mastering the um, 
the direction. And so whenever we have something which is dedicated to mastery and control and power, we shouldn't be surprised that in a fallen world, it unleashes remarkable levels of evil. Right. Well, and that's part of a a chapter that you've been working on for a book and talking about the mastery of human and non-human nature. And and that's a fascinating chapter. And in there, when you're speaking of the idea, um, kind of shifting streams here for a second, um, you've written about this idea of resurrection and moral order and and wrote that when Christ was resurrected, God proclaimed his vote of confidence. I love this sentence, by the way, John. God proclaimed his vote of confidence, his final yes to original model humanity which is, it's a beautiful sentence and, and concept there. So in an age of cynicism and the software model of constant upgrades, what are we saying yes to with AI and robotics? Well, what I've tried to do there is, is, is simplify and popularize the thought of Oliver O'Donovan, a British uh, theologian who wrote a very profound book, Resurrection and Moral Order. And it's really his he he saw the resurrection as uh, as playing a profound role in in as i've said confirming the original creation order so he says you know before the incarnation and the resurrection having seen the litany of everything that's happened in the old testament it would be easy to conclude that god's whole plan of creating this being made in his own image, but made out of dust, has gone horrendously wrong. And the best thing to do is to wipe the slate clean and start again with a new beginning. But when Christ then is born as a completely normal human being, is born as a baby and and, and lives a normal life, and then dies and is risen as a physical, touchable, recognizable human being. It is, as he says, it's it's the final vindication of the original humanity, as in Adam and Eve, um, that God hasn't given up on this concept. In fact, he has redeemed it and transformed it into a kind of Homo sapiens 2.0, and um, and what we see in Jesus is our first glimpse of what Homo sapiens 2.0 might be. <laughs> and so drawing on from that, I think we don't need to have a, a more advanced, sophisticated kind of humanity, you know, to put it in simplistic terms. If this kind of humanity is good enough for Jesus then it's good enough for me. I, I don't need to uh, to crave an enhanced and uh, robotically or digitally enhanced kind of humanity because the original form of humanity has been vindicated in, in the incarnate Christ. That's absolutely beautiful. And it flies in the face of what's happening in, and I use the term Silicon Valley as sort of a representative term for technology and AI and robotics. But, but it seems like then, John, how could we as Christians push back and say, actually, A, we don't need an upgrade as you think we do. That's already been accomplished in the resurrection of Jesus. But B, then what do we do with this push towards you know, the the upgrading of the human that's happening, regardless of, you know, what our beliefs are. Well, I think that's right. And I, and I think, I, I think this is a huge challenge for us as we come into this age, because mm. it seems to me that transhumanism is an idea, a philosophy whose time has arrived. And in many ways, we're already seeing low tech transhumanism. I mean, even cosmetic surgery, you know, gender defining surgery, um, gene doping, recreational pharmaceuticals, all these are kind of low-tech transhumanism. Already the idea has come that we need to uh, upgrade our bodies. And and I think these are just very low-tech versions of what is to come. What is to come is a much higher-tech 
uh, more sophisticated version of improving ourselves. And I, I think it's going to be a challenge for everybody, but particularly for Christians, to say, you know, am I going to go down this route because this is the this is where the smart money is? Or am I going to say, actually, <laughs> you know what? I love being human in the way that I've been made. I mean, I think I would argue that this desperate sense that there must be more to human existence than this. I mean, it's driven by a sense of dissatisfaction. You know, I am just not satisfied. I have all these dreams of what could be, and then I wake up in cold reality and it's yuck. I, d I am not satisfied. And I think that is what an example of what C.S. Lewis calls the inconsolable longing. It, it is it is a God-implanted longing for something more, something greater, but it then gets redirected into the, well, let's do it through technology. Right. Well, and one of the things we talked about before was that we we build artifacts as idols, and they're usually things, right? So maybe it's AI, maybe it's a piece of wood or whatever. But you talk about this idea of fashioning the future as an artifact. And I've heard a lot of scientists refer to this as we're creating a preferred future, you know, better living through chemistry or, or whatever version of it is that that particular technology is going to help us be better. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you this in a funny way. What do the philosopher uh, or the theologian Oliver O'Donovan and the rock <laughs> band Pink Floyd have to say about this? That well-known philosophical um, <laughs> source, Pink Floyd. I mean, just to backtrack a bit, the grand narrative of Christianity was pretty much unique in the ancient world because most of the ancient religions, including the Eastern religions, their understanding of history was almost entirely cyclical, that there were these great cycles of, of and things improved and then they degraded and we went round and round and round and round. And Christianity, building on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and was always progressive. It always saw there was an arc of history. There was a line of history. It was one directional. And it was a drama. It was a drama created by the great dramatist, and we were bit players in the drama. And that has been really f uh, throughout most of the history of, of Christianity has been the dominant understanding of history. But then increasingly we get in the second half, in the second, uh, you know, from 1500s onwards, um, and there are figures like Thomas Bacon, who are some of the founding of this idea, this idea that human beings can grasp control of the levers uh, that we don't just leave it up to God to direct history and to his providence, but actually we are creating history. And this is where Pink Floyd, you know, and every everything is a brick in the wall, is, is this idea of <laughs> every act I do is creating the future. The future is an artifact, a human product, which is created of our human choices. And all of us together have this terrible responsibility, a crushing responsibility to build the future. And if we don't do, are very careful in how we choose which bricks we place there, the future could be catastrophic. The future may well be a complete and utter disaster simply because we failed to build the wall well. And this is in, in some ways, intellectually, a kind of grand heresy. It's a Christian heresy. It's a um, where where human choice and human will has replaced the sovereignty of God and the providential wisdom of God over over history, and um, but it's a very powerful image. It, it, it's humans come of age. We are now, you know, we've come out of the swamp, and by some enormous fluke, we've now worked out how we can great grasp control over the future, and now <laughs> and now we're making it and. You know, you see this particularly in these sort of big figures like Elon Musk and, you know, where, who are so dominated by science fiction tropes of, you know, these of, of intelligences. And um, I have the privilege of having a conversation with Martin Rees tomorrow, who's the Astronomer Royal in the UK. And he has, um, again, written about this. That, and he says that our paltry human intelligences are merely 
you know, the, the, the premonitions of a far more deeper thinking and cerebration of the future intellects, the non-human intellects of the future. And, and it's this, this idea, it's all there of we are creating the future. But there is a, a sort of crushing duty on this, which we, you, we hear a lot in the climate sphere, don't we? And, and I'm not by any means diminishing the reality of, of climate change, but it's this sense that unless we sort ourselves out, we are destroying the world catastrophe. It's all our responsibility. And and there's also a sense of, of hopelessness that it's too late. Right. You know, bad decisions have been made and there's nothing we can do. We have we've we've messed it up. And um and we're just we have a doom in front of us. So a terrible sense of fatalism. Yeah. Well, the interesting part there is like you have framed it, there's this kind of crushing responsibility coupled with astonishing arrogance to say that we could actually make the choices outside of God's providence. And and I think that goes back to the the idea that we've dismissed an actual superintelligence in the world and we think we need to make a superintelligence to fix the problems. So That's right. And I think that the Christian understanding and it's I've I've struggled to try and find a good analogy to compare with building bricks in the wall, but <laughs> Pink Floyd did it best. It seems that one way of thinking about it is that there's a great river which is, which is flowing through history and which, which started before the foundation of the world. And it's the river of God's providential purposes and plans. And we are called to contribute to the flow of the river. And we do that by putting rocks in, in or, or little dams or something like that but and these our actions do influence the river they do have downstream effects and therefore we're called on to act wisely to act with faith hope and love and, and prudence and, and so on justice but we are not so arrogant as to think that we can in any way redirect the river the river is going to flow long after we have disappeared and and that gives a a, um, a freedom and and o'donovan points out that actually this is the way that the bible thinks of the sabbath that it's possible that we don't have to work seven days a week seven days a week seven days a week building a future we can actually have a sabbath when we stop and we celebrate and we enjoy and we rest because the future of the river doesn't depend on us Right. It's Christ's yoke upon us, not our yoke, to to make it happen. John, as someone with experience in medical and bioethics, you've noted that we've been at that long enough to have formulated a clear Christian response. And at the same time, you've suggested that AI presents us with such genuinely new issues that we don't at the moment have an equivalent framework for AI ethics. And to quote you, which I, I love to do actually these days, John, uh, we're painfully aware of our deficiency and we're working on it. <laughs> so, and you are, you're, you're at the Faraday Institute. You've, you've turned your intellect and your superpowers toward these issues. So think of this podcast for a second as a sort of audio whiteboard. <laughs> What ideas might be foundational to a clear Christian response to the simulacrum? Yeah, well, I think we need to think much more deeply about the theology of simulation. It seems to me that we haven't we haven't been forced to do that before. And I think one of the fascinating things, you know, in the history of, of Christian doctrine is that it's often the confrontation with new challenging ideas and, and quotes, heresies, which stimulates an outflowering of new Christian thinking so that, you know, we have a much, if it wasn't for the challenges of the ancient heresy of Arius and so on, we would never have a, a worked out, fleshed out doctrine of, of the Trinity and of Christology and so on. So I'm actually very excited because I think in the interface with these new, very challenging ideas, we're going to discover new depths and truths within the richness of the Christian faith. And so I think one is a theology of simulation versus authenticity and why 
authenticity really matters. There's a wonderful scene in in the uh, television series Westworld, you know, rather tacky mm. um, <laughs> series where, <laughs> but good, <laughs> which is compelling, uh, where there's. A, a, um, a theme park uh, dominated by humanoid robots and real human beings can go to the theme park and they can live out their fantasies, which seem to be largely about either having sex with robots or else shooting them and fighting with them. I mean, what else right. would you do? Sex I mean, and really, violence. It's obvious, isn't it? But um, <laughs> right. there's this theme in one of the early episodes when a, a human being arrives in the theme park for the first time and this beautiful woman comes up to him and, and says, is, is there anything I can do for you? And he stares at her and he says, are you real or are you one of those? And she says, Mm. if you can't tell the difference, does it matter? And it seems to me that question is like it sort of resonates as the question which we will have to wrestle with on into the future. If we can't tell the difference, does it matter? And I think my my Christian instinct, and I'm sure yours is as well, is yes, it jolly well does matter. But we need to right. find ways of expressing why, why it matters. I've had an interesting thought experiment in this, and that is, suppose my wife, who I've been married to for 33 years, is actually a Russian agent in very deep cover, and... Uh, actually she's been living this completely double life and she's got a handler and so on and I'm completely unaware of all this and suppose I go to my grave and I always think that she loved me and that we had a good marriage does it matter that actually she was a double agent and I think the Christian instinct is yes it does even if I never found out I was being lied to and our relationship was not based on the truth and I think that is so, so it's deeply related to truth, trustworthiness. I recently discovered that the three English words, truth, trustworthy, and troth, as in I pledge you my troth, are all related. Oh, uh, because interesting. That's, that's, and it's similarly in Hebrew, that. that these concepts are very closely intertwined. And, and so the simulacrum rides a coach and horses through truth, trustworthy and troth. So that, I think that's, that's one area I think we, we need to work on. I think another area is just on, on what it means to be a person because I, I think what the philosophy of artificial intelligence does is it privileges a certain kind of rationality, a certain kind of computational processing as being the core of what personhood is. And I, as a paediatrician, who have cared for many children with profound brain injury or with disabling conditions, am completely convinced that despite the fact that they may have a very impaired ability to process thoughts, they're still very much as much a person as I am. In other words, personhood is not the same as processing power. And, but then the question is, well, what is it? Right. And I think ultimately it's a reflection of the image of God and the fact of the persons of the, of the Trinity, that, that we are persons in relation, uh, we're made in relation. And uh, I've, as a simplistic tag, I've suggested that instead of cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, which of course is therefore at the root of the kind of the philosophy of AI, I think it's, in, in Latin, amor, ego sum, which means I am loved, therefore I am. It is, it is actually to be in love, in relation, that is the core of my personhood and my being. And only human beings can experience that. So, so I think the, 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 the theology of personhood and of human anthropology is something which we need to drill down deeper and further in order to compare and contrast with the, quotes, analogous or simulated personhood of the machines. Right. You know, everything you've said just raises, again, more thoughts and questions, but I, I've heard that we are not primarily thinking things, we are primarily loving things, which is why you see so many irrational decisions made over love, even in light of all of the cognitive 
you know, warnings against such a relationship. And I'll, I want to point to you too, my father's uh, suffering with Alzheimer's and kind of rejected the church all his life. And then when his brain started to go, he started to go to church with my mom and he listens to the Bible now and will pray with us. And my mom asked her pastor, what's up with that? You know, and he's, how do I take this? Is this real? You know, cause his brain is gone. And the, and the pastor responded, the brain and the soul are different and operate differently. And God can affect our soul, even if our brain doesn't work as it did before, which kind of goes to your infant. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And there's this wonderful verse in the Psalms, deep calls to deep. And that's often been applied to that, you know, that the deep things of God are knowable by the deepest places of what it means to be human. And that's, again, an aspect of the image. And it's the way that whether we like it or not, we are in a relationship with God. And so, and I think it's true that therefore our cognitive rational bits of our minds and brains, which are supposed to help us in our faith and, and guide us in our faith, can actually be the obstruction to our faith. And, and of course, we need to become like little child. I mean, Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's the, the pride and the arrogance of our thinking rationality. And we can work this out ourselves, which becomes the biggest barrier. Yeah. Well, as we close, when you and I talked before, you used a term, co-belligerence, which I looked up. <laughs> I mean, I know the words, but historically, apparently, it's meant that you were allied with someone else against a common enemy in a conflict or a war. But how might we as Christians expand or update our definition of this term in this deceptive AI-infused robot-forward simulation-centric world? What are we what are we up against and how might we join forces with other believers as we face this? Yes, I I find this concept very helpful because the idea of co-belligerence is that we're in some kind of conflict and we're trying to promote our particular uh, perspectives and so on. And for the purposes of this particular conflict, we find other people who don't necessarily share our entire worldview or convictions, but who on this particular aspect share our common goals. And we agree to fight together. We agree to pool our resources in order to have greater effect and and the fascinating thing about this kind of field is that Christians can find very different co-belligerence from other fields, such as in, you know, the very well-worn pro-life, pro-choice fields and so on. This is quite a different, there are very different co-belligerence here. And in particular, I think there are a whole number of people who don't come from a Christian or religious perspective, but who are deeply concerned about making human-centered technology and uh, are concerned as we are about the abuse of the vulnerable about manipulation and coercion about data storage and i think even though we don't share fundamental metaphysical or philosophical concerns we do share common concerns about the appropriate use of this technology and i'm struck by how many people there are out there who share these concerns in fact I think we're probably easily the majority, but at the moment we don't have any mechanisms for pooling our common concerns and interests. And and I think we've got a great deal to learn from people who coming not from a Christian perspective who are in some ways ahead of the game compared to us in terms of thinking of ways of minimizing damage, harm minimization, splitting up commercial interests, improved regulation, warnings, uh, like the Turing red flag, uh, and so on. So I would very much encourage us to be looking for co-belligerence and to be wanting to pool our resources to try <laughs> to have a greater influence against what we, where we see clear evil and dangers. Have you seen this in the field of bioethics already? I mean, we're about 50 years behind these big questions and that's been your sort of swimming pool for a long time oh absolutely i mean a, an example would be for instance in reproductive technology 
you know, concerns about IVF and the use of embryos and, and all that kind of stuff. I've found a number of co-belligerents, for instance, with feminist groups who are very concerned about the abuse of women. I've found them in ecological groups who are concerned about nature and protecting nature and not using embryo enhancement and so on. So, I mean, it's just examples of where, certainly in the bioethical field, co-belligerence is, is a very powerful and effective tool. I just like the term co-belligerent. And I'm one. I, I'm on your team. I'm in, in the game, John. Every time I talk to you, I learn something new, and I end up grinning at God's goodness. <laughs> I just want to thank you for taking time That's to join good. me today, because you have a lot of work to do. So get back at it. And I'll, I'll at some point probably join you as a co-belligerent in some way. Okay, I'll, we'll be out there on the on the frontiers. <laughs> on the front. That's right. Well, it's been a real pleasure again, and thanks for joining me, John. It's been great, Gretchen. God bless you and what you're up to. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Oh,